This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 115. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 115 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Lawton Audio. Yes, 115, totally out of breath. I just did a, uh, just about a three-mile walk, uh, kind of a brisk walk with the, with the wife and kids. And uh, yeah, my blood is flowing. It's good, you know? We spend a huge amount of our existence as recording professionals sitting down in front of a computer most likely and if not a computer a mixing console sitting is the key term there and so i hate running and i don't belong to a gym and i swim whenever i can it doesn't cost anything to walk you know it's good for you i've seen studies where they look at people who live over the age of 100 and the common denominator is always walking and i think that there is uh there's i think it's the seventh day adventist adventists a religious group in uh i think southern california there's a big group of them and they they walk quite a bit and they studied them and they studied this other group in a uh, in another part of the world that i can't remember that anyways the point is is walking is really really good for you so get out there walk. And you might think, well, but I have so much work to do. I have to sit and mix and edit or do whatever you need to do. I think your brain is just more focused when you have exercised to some degree. So there it is. So I have a incredible guest today that, and I say incredible because he's just a badass. He's a badass. And uh, I keep getting emails from people constantly to get him on the show. By way of popular demand, I have as my guest today, Mr. Kurt Ballou of the band Converge of God City Studios, producer, engineers, worked with uh, Code Orange, High on Fire, Mutoid Man, Conver Converge, his own band, of course, that he does recording for, Russian Circles, the Dillinger Escape Plan, all kinds of bands. Anyways, Kurt is on and I'm really excited to talk to him. I'm I'm a big fan of, I haven't listened to every record he's done, but I will say that the Lumen, I can't ever say this. It's a, it's the High on Fire record, Luminiferous. There we go. Luminiferous. That record sounds incredible to me. I love the way that sounds. And for such a heavy band to have such definition and thickness, it's just, it really, really does something for me. So yeah, Kurt Ballou coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Very excited about that. So, you know, I've been on my whole minimalism kick. And one of the things that I'm plagued with, and you probably are too, is boatloads of cassettes, boatloads of dat tapes, boatloads of CDs. And number one, I hate throwing stuff out like that. And number two, I want to preserve the audio that's on a lot of that stuff. But that's a challenge because it's time consuming. And, you know, you got to hook all your stuff up to do it. So, I purposely set out to rearrange my room so that I have my production rig for mixing, overdubbing, mastering, doing the podcast, et cetera. That's, that's kind of been confined to one section of my, my room. And the other section on a set of bookshelves, I have cobbled together my DAP machine, a Studer cassette deck, uh, a Sony mini disc player recorder, and I ordered up a new CDR you know, DVD rewritable thing, all to hook up to a spare laptop and a 
Apollo that I pulled, I separated one of my Apollos that I have two Apollos. So I took one of them that doesn't see as much use and I figured I'm going to reallocate its resources to doing this. So I've set it up so the Apollo just has dedicated inputs labeled ready to go into Studio One to record all these different things. And obviously, you know, I'll use something uh, different to uh, like iTunes maybe, I guess, to suck the CDs in or maybe I'll use something else to suck them in as flack files, I don't know. Anyhow, the point is, is almost like a digitization station, even though, you know, some of that's already digitized and uh, just transferring the ones and the zeros. But really excited about that. And it kind of gets me into that mindset of, you know, every day I can set up some stuff to to transfer and let it run while I do my other work and then, you know, check it later and make sure the transfer went down as it should and uh, just archive all that stuff in a, you know, on a hard drive or on multiple hard drives because we know how, how it is. So we have to do multiple hard drives. And then I can actually dispense with all that stuff and that'll be the next project to figure out where do you dump a bunch of DAT tapes? What do you do with a bunch of DAT tapes that you've already used? Maybe I'll just, you know, put them in a box and set it on fire. I don't know. <laughs> Got to figure something out. Anyways, so yeah, very excited about that. Going to get all of these CDs, cassettes, DATs, mini discs. Yes, mini discs. Because at one point I bought a little mini disc recorder and I had a little stereo mic. And I... Uh, took it around and recorded stuff. In fact, I took it on a uh, trip I took with my wife to Europe and recorded trains and sounds of the city and all that stuff, stuff that has never been used. And I'll just uh, transfer it somewhere and hoard it digitally. So that's uh, that's what I'm doing. This kind of goes back once again, just to that whole minimalist thing, just trying to purge all that stuff I don't need and digitize and organize. So I'm going to probably have a, a quick conversation with uh, former D WCA alum Jessica Thompson about that method to make sure that I'm doing it in a way that makes a lot of sense and take her advice because I really value her advice on that kind of stuff. So yeah, consider it. If you got some old gear sitting around, you think, hey, I could have a cassette digitizing station and I could digitize all my cassettes and get rid of them. Because some of us, you know, of a certain age definitely still have cassettes. I have four track masters, eight track masters, all kinds of stuff. So all in the process of getting rid of stuff. And the final thing I want to talk to you about before we head on into our interview with Kurt Ballou is this. I was sent a message from uh, one of the listeners to alert me to a GoFundMe page. And I know I, I alert you to these GoFundMe things of people in dire straits. And, you know, some of you may be totally all for that. And some of you may think, you know, every man for himself. I'm not that kind of guy. I really, you know, if I am in a position to help somebody out, uh, I like to do that if possible. So this situation is no different. This is a situation for a fellow engineer, producer, studio owner, uh, Mike McHugh, uh, who used to have a studio called The Distillery. And Mike has worked on a bunch of records. Many of them I, I honestly don't know very well. Uh, some of them I do. I know the names of a lot of these, these things, uh, like Steve Wynn and The Miracle 3, uh, working on records for for Steve Wynn. And, um, you know, I'm just going to read some of these uh, off of his uh, discography that I see on, um, uh, on Discogs. Uh, the Manifolds, The Hunches, uh, Bill Tapia, uh, Black Lips, uh, the distraction, you know, just a bunch, I mean, just page after page after page of tons of independent bands on, on various labels. So including, you know, uh, Rough Trade, Alternative Tentacles, Everloving, 
Six City Records, you know, stuff like that. So unfortunately, Mike McHugh seems to have found himself in in kind of a rough situation here. And I'm just looking here at the GoFundMe page. And so somebody started this up and it's uh, it basically says, hello, everyone. I'm putting this GoFundMe together for our friend Mike McHugh. He's recently become homeless after recovering from his second back surgery and now faces a third back su- surgery after slipping and falling one day in the last few weeks. They're trying to gather funds to get him a van to drive slash live in. I hope more funds can be gathered so he doesn't have to live in a van, to be honest with you. It says since 2012, he hasn't had a home for his Dan Flickinger board after the closing of the distillery, and he's trying to remain in good spirits. But the person who wrote this says that they they worry that without our help, uh, he could perish. So uh, they say all the money will go directly towards helping Mike get a van, start the studio, pay the rent, bills, and other associated costs, hopefully get him into a place to live. So it looks like the goal is 15,000. And... uh, Looks like they're they're just you know uh, short of the goal. So I tell you, if you can, uh, I'm going to put a link. Uh, it's my, it's GoFundMe.com/slash Mike McHugh. That's M I K E M C H U G H. But I'll put a link in the show notes on the Working Class Audio page. So you know what, people are uh, kicking down ten, forty dollars, sixty five. Some are giving far more than that, of course. So you know, if you can, five bucks, ten bucks, you know, that all goes a long way. Do what you can. Let's help help out a fellow uh, recording professional because I tell you, if I was in that situation, I would hope that somebody would do the same for me and I am more than happy to do it for others in need. So yeah, let's see if we can help Mr. McHugh out here and uh, and get him off the street because that's that's no place for, for anybody, really, recording professional or not. So there it is. Look for the look for the link on the working class audio page. So that's it. Uh, let's get into it here. Dive in with Mr. Kurt Ballou here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I've been watching videos, I've been reading, I've been listening, and I'll just say right up front, you're really good at what you do, I gotta say. From and that's an in, that's engineer mixing guy talking to you saying, I really respect what you do. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I was listening to Nails and High on Fire, as well as your own band. And man, the sounds I heard, uh, there's just, there's a richness to them that really appeals to me. And being a drummer, the way you approach drums really appeals to me. Oh, thank you. It's interesting, you know, working with a bunch of loud bands, just trying to make everything louder than everything else, but still, you know, to, to satisfy myself, maintain some sort of sense of organicness and and space and natural space around the instrument so it's always a it's always a challenge but it's a fun one yeah in some of the bands there is more space in the music and some there is not very much space at all and somehow you manage to carve out space for everybody yeah i mean that's kind of like the thing that i do more than anything else i mean i wish that i had a, an opportunity to be more creative with my recording techniques you know it's just actually just recently i was recording a band where the the drummer in the band has recently got into recording himself and he's he's got a little small studio and i can tell he's been like reading on the internet and following i don't know sylvia massey or you know people that are doing crazy crazy things like recording drums through a vacuum cleaner hose and like doing vocals through the trash can and you know but his band is like maximum 100 percent density everything as loud or everything louder than everything else all the time and unfortunately there's just no space for fun um creative recording techniques that are good in photo ops <laughs> uh, sylvia was posting something like 
a few weeks back, she was recording through Pickles. Okay, I saw, I saw the hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. She rules. If I had the time to record through Pickles, I would do so as well. I think that's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, my last session was three bands in one day, so we weren't doing any any uh, Pickles. Since we're on the topic of, of bands and recording, let's let's talk about that as a starting point. When it comes to recording, I'm kind of curious about a few things. So let's start with the uh, the number one thing that I have on my list, which is what about drugs or alcohol in the studio for the bands you work with? And do you have a policy about that? If they're doing it, it's they're doing it probably secretively. I mean, I certainly have had people that have needed a bit of that from time to time. I mean, you know, I think people have a beer here and there and maybe people smoke a little pot here and there, but it's definitely not something that is an integral part of my recording process. I'm I'm a sober person myself, and I generally around people that aren't. I just end up irritating them, <laughs> or or making them. I somehow come off as a dick just because I've I don't have like the patience to slow myself down for that for that altered state. I just want to like get here, do the work, and then and then be done with it. So I try I try to avoid situations like that. I mean, it's not always avoidable. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm not a big fan of that stuff in in the studio. Maybe during the during like the writing process, I can see how it, it helps certain people, uh, mm -hmm. but but it's not something that I take part in. Is it something that you've ever had a problem with with any bands? There's one band in particular that was it was hard to uh, you know just it, it it affected the 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 schedule quite a bit. You know mm -hmm. there was uh, there was an alcoholic involved and. You know, it made it, it made it difficult to actually get to work because, you know, he was he was ducking out to do things or just needed to drink in order to function, unfortunately. Um, yeah. You know, and he's he's be he's better now. Um, but he, he was having a tough time during during one of the recordings I did with them. What's your general approach to working with bands? What's the the uh, attitude or demeanor that you think you bring to the table? Well, most of the bands that I work with are, are people that I'm pretty friendly with that maybe um, – come from a similar background as, as me with regards to like, you know, punk punk and metal roots. Um, and, and also, you know, I've done a lot of touring with my band Converge. A lot of the bands that I record, I've met through touring with Converge. So we're, we're friends from the road first. So there's, um, there's a degree of trust that, that happens when you're recording with someone that you feel like is part of your community rather than, you know, some other person that's maybe tangential to that community. And when I when I do take on uh, recording or producing roles where I am kind of tangential to that community, I try to like spend as much time with I can as I can with the with the bands, get to know them, and you know joke around with them and get them to trust me and learn what it is that makes them tick, so that I can approach recording them as an insider and not as you know a, an outsider. I mean, if I need to just take a documentarian role, I can do that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, but I'd rather like understand what a band is about. I wish there was some kind of study done on producers and engineers that have that band element on their side, like being a part of a band, being on the road, as you say, and having that camaraderie versus those who, who don't and how that changes the dynamic and or trust and ultimately how that affects the final product that anybody yeah. would produce. I mean, I would love to just do a psychological study on all personality types in music, you know, like the common threads between engineers and the, uh, you know, the singer, lead singer disease, bass player, disease, you know, like the, the under, the unappreciated real genius of the band, the guitar player who thinks that, you know, they're going to go out on their own and make it big or the wild 
overly energetic drummer, you know, all the, all the various stereotypes that people seem to fall into, whether it's like, is it a certain personality type that's attracted to a certain role or does, does playing a certain role in, you know, the musical ecosystem bring out sort certain elements of someone's personality or skill sets? Uh, you know, I, I find all that stuff really fascinating. You know, like as I, as I meet engineers who are involved in all sorts of different music and at, at all sorts of different levels in their career, I find it really interesting to find that we have a lot in common, you know, even if we don't like the same music at all. I would like to see a study on those same people that you just mentioned as compared to uh, and, and put and throw into the mix those who have um, attention deficit disorder, Asperger's. Well, there was a thing going around. I mean, I, I don't want to trivialize anyone who has Asperger's, but there was a thing going around on the electrical board a few years ago where a bunch of engineers realized at the same time that all of their uh, significant others had made them take online Aspie tests. <laughs> you know, like I, my girlfriend at the time made me take one and it, the online test, which who knows how accurate it is, uh, showed that I'm on that spectrum. And I'm sure my, a lot of my friends would agree. Yeah. There's, I mean, like, you know, you mentioned Albini earlier. There's like, I, I think that there's people have an impression of what he might be like that isn't really what he is. But I think that there's kind of like a bluntness in the way that he communicates sometimes that is sometimes equated with with Asperger's, you know, that, that people use to vilify him. And I think it's not uncommon amongst engineers to like to go through that. I would completely agree that I, I don't know. I couldn't say for sure about about Steve, but I could say that that bluntness, that lack of social grace. Which is super interesting because, you know, the job that we have depends so much on building trust with other human beings, you know, and an, an emotional, and finding what it is about the emotion of a song um, that is impactful to a listener and, and how do you convey that sonically. But, you know, a lot of engineers are attracted to engineering because of the technical side of things. And yet their job requires so much emotion in order to be good at it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really interesting finding, you know, someone who is competent in, in both of those fields tends to be the, the, the person that does, does best in engineering. Yeah. It never occurred to me that that was an aspect to the personalities of many, you know, the adults, of course, I don't know any children engineers, but being that I have kids and I'm exposed to some of my the friends of my kids who do have Asperger's and such. And some of those behaviors, I would see that and go, wow, that totally reminds me of so-and-so who's a recording engineer or this person who oh mixes. Well, when, hey, when that kid has a birthday, Pro Tools. <laughs> <laughs> you know, give, him, give him something to focus on, GarageBand, whatever. Now, this is a really important question, Kurt, and I want you to think really hard about it. How do you take your coffee? <laughs> um, well, let's see. I just finished an almond milk latte from <laughs> A&J King, fabulous baker in, in Salem, Massachusetts, walking distance from my studio. But generally, generally a little soy creamer. Alt, alt milks are my thing. Okay. I'm not a, not a consumer of dairy myself, but I like light roast. Okay. Light roast. I want to talk a little business. You're a bit of an, of an entrepreneur as well as an engineer and as a producer, you seem to venture into some other avenues. I mean, obviously a band is a small business. A studio mm -hmm. is, is a small business. For sure. But you kind of stretch outside of that a little bit too. 
we talked the other day about your drum samples, which I, I recently purchased and am very happy with. Thanks. You did a, a fantastic job with that. While I have you and your listeners' ears, I just need to say there's a lot of confusion about my sample library, about how it interacts with contact. You do not need to purchase contact to use my sample library. We 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 got licenses for it. It works for it works within the free uh, contact player without any restrictions. So all you need to do is buy the sample library and you can use this. It's and like can, it's we're constantly fielding this question and we shouldn't have even mentioned contact in the first place. Yeah. Well, because I had to ask you when I yeah. talked to you because I was like, okay, well I'll get hit Kurt's thing and. Oh, how much is the contact thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a lot of people don't don't get that. And, and honestly, it took me a while to even understand it myself. There's the God City Instruments. Tell me about that. God City Instruments is something I've been dabbling with for quite a long time now. You know, I, I come from a very like DIY kind of family. Like my father's a machinist and I kind of grew up around tools. A lot of my other relatives are self-employed too. So I kind of grew up with this attitude of that I can figure anything out. Um, or, or like, I'm, I'm not going to let a lack of means stop me from doing something that I want to do. You know, it was very, very common trait in my family to uh, not buy things off the shelves just because of some, you know, dissatisfaction with what whatever was commercially available. So make it yourself, you know. So like, you know, my whole, like my first bike, uh, my dad welded for me. And my second bike, my dad, we went to the metal yard, picked out a bunch of tubing and then welded together a bike. And that's what I raced when I, when I did BMX and I practiced BMX on like some jumps and stuff in my backyard that I built when I rented a Bobcat and, you know, <laughs> like stuff like that. It's just like a, like a DIY entrepreneurial kind of spirit amongst my family. So as I started playing music, you know, the first thing I did when I got my first guitar was take it apart. And I've kind of always done that with guitars. And then, you know, friends started asking me if they could, if I could help them put together parts, guitars, and then I would do that. And then I was like, wait a second, I could just make bodies. And that whole thing is kind of snowballed. And I've, I've made about 30 or 40 guitars myself that I've either kept or sold to friends or given, given to friends or something. Um, now I'm in the, like the second phase of a commercial partnership with someone developing prototypes to have like some commercially available guitar designs. I just don't have a lot of time to devote to it. It's something I really love doing. And I think that I can make uh, really a, a positive impact on um, when it comes to just, you know, providing like high quality American made guitars, or at least my own, you know, my own kind of slant to it. But unfortunately, I just haven't been able to devote a lot of time to it. So I, I don't have release date for for guitars. I've also made a bunch of drums, uh, some like like all titanium drums. I was trying to buy like a, a titanium Danette at one point, And I kept asking him questions and like, oh, can you do it this way? Can you do it that way? And he just stopped responding to me. So I figured, I guess I was just a pain in the ass. So I was like, all right, well, fuck this. I can just do this myself. I mean, it's not that hard. You like yeah. buy titanium. I mean, I know... I used to be a, a mechanical engineer, so like I, I have solid works, and I just like laid out some titanium sheet metal, like with all the holes in it in the flat, and then um, had it water jet cut, and then rolled into a pipe and welded, and you know made my own shell, and then just stuck parts to it. It's like not that it's not really that hard to make a drum. It's certainly like a lot. It's not anywhere near as hard as making like a guitar neck or like a hollow body guitar or something like that. Or at least the way that I did it wasn't. But the the, the titanium snare I, I made, I've made like like eight of those. They they all sound really incredible. And I actually the the, the main snare on um, on my drum sample library is, is one that I made. That drum has been on probably like eighty percent of the recordings I've done over the past like five or six years. Mm -hmm. So I hope to make more of those. But you know, another it's just another thing that I just don't have time to do. And now I, you know I have a new new son which is 
taken up a lot of my free time. So I, I don't know when I'm going to get back to drum building, but I have that. But then, but but guitar pedals are coming. <laughs> so that's that's actually happening. So like uh, a couple months ago, actually a few years ago, I went to Nam and then you know doing the whole Nam schmooze thing, and you know, people were passing out business cards, and I had this idea that it would be cool to have a business card that was like a PCB for a guitar pedal. So um, I eventually got around to um, to like pursuing that. I had had my friend Nick Williams who runs a company called Dunwich Amplification or Dunwich Amps. He designed this pedal for me that's a, sort of like a clone of a, a pedal called the Providence Stampede. It's like a 18 volt bipolar, super high powered distortion pedal. And that's gonna be out later this year. And that's called the Brutalist. And for my business card, I had Nick design me like a more a simplified nine volt unipolar version of that distortion pedal that all fits on a business card and is and you put it together yourself with a kit. I watched the video. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I made like a hundred of those. I figured I would just like give them out to friends or, you know, if I if people saw me on the street or at a show or something like that, I'd hand hand them out to like tech techie kind of people, DOI people. But it like went crazy and all these people like got mad at me and and thought that it was like kind of like an exclusive thing like like what well, i'm never i live in you know jakarta i'm never gonna see you like why don't you send me the business card it's just it's like too much for me to like make records and also like run an e-store to like send send these things all over the place so um i ended up having a, a, my friend's record label uh decided they would distribute these things and i and i put them in their uh their e-store and i've i sold like 800 of them um, oh my God. Yeah, and they kept selling out in like 10 minutes. So Small Bear Electronics have um, provided the parts kit for it. So there's like a one clicks skew for ordering the parts for the for the Brutalist Junior PCB. And uh, they've, they've only sold like 100, 150 of the kits. So I think a lot of people are just collecting the business cards and not that many people have actually built them. Although a lot of people are just building them a la carte. You know, that's a unique business card. And, and, and in fact, here, I'll, only because it's close by and I can see it from where I'm sitting. Unique business cards I, I hold on to, and this is... Is that the electrical audio one? That's the electrical audio yeah. stainless steel one. Oh, you mean the the, uh, the one for cocaine? Oh, is that what it's used for? <laughs> that's what it looks <laughs> yeah, like to me. I don't know. That's not, Kevin's not into a, that. But. Steve's like such a, you know, a cokehead, of course. Oh, wait. Oh, that's the electrical audio one. Oh, what did you say? I, I, I think I may have said electrical audio, but I meant electrical guitars. Oh, no, no. This is uh, Steve Albini's card. Oh, okay. Because electrical guitars also have like a thin, maybe it is maybe it's steel. I mean, it should be aluminum, but I think aluminum would be too flexible. So maybe it's like stainless. But yeah, it's like it's like basically a razor blade. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're awesome. It's like a laser cut razor blade. That's, I don't really hold on to business cards. I scan them. I, I think that the electrical one definitely uh, was, uh, was maybe why I was inspired. Actually, I think I have it. Do I have it like right here? <laughs> I think I might. I have like all the business cards I got in, from Nam that year that just happened to be like, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Electrical Guitar Company. Yeah. And here we have electric. Okay, so for the <laughs> audience, we are showing off our stainless steel business cards. From... Yeah, this is definitely this is definitely stainless, and it's super sharp. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm sure somebody has chopped cocaine with this. <laughs> We always touch on money topics. Gear versus money uh, is something that we always touch on. Some people really go in the hole for gear and spend all the money that they make. 
So I'm not, you know, I'd be curious to hear your philosophy on money management as a studio owner, as a engineer. Yeah. I mean, it's, you ask me now and I'll have one philosophy. Ask me in six months, it might be different. Ask me like six years ago, it's probably different then too. I mean, I have a lot of stuff. So I guess uh, I have a gear addiction like everybody else, but I go in waves where like I don't buy anything for years. And then, uh, then I'll buy a lot of stuff. And sometimes it's just because I want it. Other times it's because like some kind of thing has come up where I need some stuff. I actually lived in an apartment above my studio for a very long time, for like for 12 years, I think. And then a couple of years ago, I bought a house. Now my studio is residential, but at my house, I needed some gear so that I could do some mixing while I was there. And my assistant would run sessions at, at God City. So I had to get I had to get some gear for that. I moved some stuff home, but I had to get some new gear for that. But that was more like a need to have, not a want to have kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, my assistant and I have have uh, started up a remote recording division of God City too. So we've, we've needed some additional gear for that, and that's been like a need to have, not a not a want to have kind of situation. My want to haves of of in recent history, the past few years, have really focused much more on the input devices, the things that that make the sounds and not as much on the things that capture the sounds. Like I honestly, I don't even remember the last time I bought a mic. It's been a while, but I guitar pedals, I've probably bought at least a hundred pedals or acquired a hundred pedals in the last couple of years. If not, mm. more, if not more, speaker cabinets, amps, guitars, drums, that kind of stuff. I find that, you know, changes there. I can hear a much more significant difference in what that does to the, the quality of my recordings than on what um, a new microphone preamp does, for example. So long as I have like a sufficient quantity and quality of, of microphones and mic preamps and stuff, then then I'm I'm pretty happy in that department. And I, I sort of settled on a complement of gear a while back and haven't really changed a whole lot since then. There's actually a bunch of stuff that I'm not using often that I that I need to sell. I think I really hit a turning point when I got my Atom S3A speakers. And mm -hmm. within a day, I was just like, oh, okay, these are the speakers for me. And I have not yet even lusted after another set of speakers. Uh, I haven't even really more than casually considered a different set of speakers. Like these are these are it for me, and I'm and I'm like that with a lot of pieces of gear too. Like it's just like I find the thing and that's it, and then I'm and then I'm done. Which is weird for me because I'm used to like swapping out stuff. Or for you know for 10, 15 years, I was just constantly rotating stuff. Maybe I just kind of realized at, at a certain point that it was not so much the gears; it was my skills that needed to be worked on. Mm -hmm. I think it's a re really common thing that like when your skills plateau, you try to solve that with with your wallet rather than by <laughs> working on your skills. You know, and in some cases that it is a valid thing that you might need a gear upgrade or another perfectly valid thing is that a new piece of gear gives you just new perspective, even if it doesn't actually sound better than something else you had. If it changes your workflow, it, it, it'll cause you to hear things differently and, and mix up your, um, your skill sets, which actually me, me building a home mix room has totally done that because I have a completely different workflow at home than I have in my main studio. And it's causing me to listen to things differently. And the records that I mix in there, I'm equally as happy as the results that I get at God City, but they sound like somebody else mixed them, which is totally weird. Like I'll bring them down, I bring the mixes down to my main studio to, to, to reference 
And I'm like, wow, this sounds great. It doesn't sound like I did it. It's so, it's so strange. That is strange. And I think sometimes the change in the workflow dictates what gear you want to buy. Maybe you've been working a certain way for a few years and then one day you're like, oh, I should be doing it this way. Absolutely. I'm right now, I have finally made the decision it's time to sell my tape machines, which is just so painful to me, but it hasn't been part of my workflow in a long time. I have owned so many tape machines. <laughs> and I've, I think I'm finally ready to have a bigger couch. Because at the end of the day, bands come to work with you for you. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I hung on to, or have hung on to the tape machines for so long, is that I still was under the impression that the gear mattered to bands. And I think in some cases it does, but m more often, or now more than ever, it's the bands care about the results more than about the gear or the process. Which, which I love. I love it about the gear. I don't love it about the process. Like, I think sometimes a lot of the, maybe not the bands that I record, but maybe like a, a band's just sort of one step removed from the bands that I record are very competitive. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we need to have the most aggressive or the fastest or the loudest or the this or the that. And, and for them, it's like, it's almost, yeah, it's like they're almost like in a competition with each other. And when you get into that, then the, I don't know, the recordings become less, less personal and more just like you know, maximum impact results and, and not like, uh, I, I want everybody I record to have a fulfilling experience recording. Like, cause I want, I want recording to be what I would want recording to be if I was on the other side of the glass. And if I was on the other side of the glass, I wouldn't want to like, you know, hand off my guitar to somebody else who maybe could play the parts a little better. I would want to like, you know, participate and enjoy the process. And, you know, even if I wasn't the greatest guitar player of all time or the best person for the job, like it, I take a lot of ownership over the over the music that I write, so I'd, I'd want to participate, and that doesn't always end up happening with some some bands, especially now, hmm. which I think is un unfortunate. So I really enjoy the creative process, and I I have to I find myself like increasingly encouraging the people that I record to embrace that and to not not feel like they need to be put into like kind of a you know just into some kind of boilerplate system of of how I do things. If I was in a band of a particular genre, even though I'm an engineer, I would come to you because you definitely have a way of, at least in the records that I've listened to that you've worked on, you have a, there's a particular thing that you're really good at. Thank you. I try to be. I mean, I try to, you know, I try, like, like I said, I try to approach every recording like I would want it to be if I was on the other side of the glass. I mean, I'm sure sometimes I fall short of that, you know, like... When you're in a band, you maybe record once a year, once every other year. So there's like those days are like really special to you. And when you're an engineer, you're you're doing it every day. So it's hard to maintain that that same level of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I really I really try to make it a good experience for everybody I work with. Mr. Kurt Ballou here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Going to take a sponsor break with Audio Technica as usual. And this time just going to once again, give a shout out to one of my favorite Audio-Technica mics. That's the AT4047. That thing just, I tell you, that's a workhorse. That's a real workhorse mic. Recently did some recording here at the house. Stuck it in the bathroom, put a Princeton guitar amp in there, and a, uh, I can't remember the guitar. I think it was a Gibson ES335. That's I think that's what it was. Could be wrong. Anyhow, we recorded some guitar in there, and 
we just threw the mic in a haphazard spot and of course captured what we did. The thing just sounded amazing. I just love that mic. The part was really good, of course, and the acoustics of the bathroom really helped contribute to the situation. But the mic itself, man, real great mic. Love it. Love it for vocals. Love it for drums. Love it for guitars. All around great mic. So check it out at audio-technica.com. See what you think. We do have some samples up on the Working Class Audio site, so be sure and check those out. Those are under bonus content under Audio Technica samples. So take a look, take a listen, judge for yourself, make your own decisions. So that's it. Let's get back into it with Mr. Kurt Ballou here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Continuing on the money discussion, do you is is the word retirement in in your brain at all? <laughs> I mean, I'm not um, suggesting that you're going to retire anytime soon, but are are you? It's it's something that a lot of engineers don't even think about. They don't save for retirement. Um, yes, I'm in that boat. I have I have like an old 401k that doesn't have very much in it, and I, you know I have some money in savings, uh, but mainly my retirement is you know in in the real estate. So um, I'm I'm not that far from paying my studio off, and my building has appreciated quite a bit since I've owned it. That the, the mm-hmm. as as gentrification in Boston has has pushed people further into the suburbs. Salem, uh, where my studio is, has really come up a lot. So there's 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 equity there that I'm counting on. There's also my house. I'm an only child, so you know whatever my parents leave to me, they have some real estate too. And my my partner's in a similar situation too, so that's kind of like what I'm counting on. She's also a lot better at saving than I am. <laughs> She's extremely frugal, which is awesome. So we're, we're kind of counting on that now. But yeah, we just we just had a our first kid, so we need to change that. I was almost honestly kind of dreading you asking me about adult shit because because <laughs> I definitely fall short in that category. Uh, don't we all? I mean, you know. There's a little Peter Pan syndrome in all of us, so I'm no judgment here. One thing that's amazing but also horrible about the music business is that it does tend to be a young person's game. So much of the both like the the media market, but also the the musicians are are younger people. So, you know, I'm 43 now. So as I'm as I'm getting older, I'm around. I still am always around people that are like 23 to 33. So that keeps me. That kind of keeps me young, but it also keeps makes it easy for me to ignore that I'm not young. Same thing with with touring and all that. So it's like it's kind of it's a double edged sword. We can point to numerous numerous uh, people in the recording world who are older, and you know, in other industries where age is a bit of a problem. In our industry, it seems to gain gain you more respect and gain you more prestige, and uh, people tend to look at you as, oh, well, you know, I. I defer to the <laughs> I defer to the old guy in the room because he knows better or something. I don't know. Oh, for sure. When it comes to engineering, yeah, um, but not so much in like the performance side of things. But I mean, but are we don't as engineers we're not around our peers as much as we are around our clients. Mm-hmm. So just my my immediate circle of people that I interact with on a daily basis are ten to twenty years younger than me. Okay. Well, as far as the family is concerned, that's a good transition, actually. I wanted to ask you about a couple things, which was time management and work-life balance, which those two things kind of go hand in hand. What, I mean, from what I understand, you, your your new baby is just that new. So yeah. you're tr- still trying to figure it out, I know. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, like I'm a, 
I'm a creative person. My partner is a creative person. And creative people need time to themselves to be creative. And with a three-month-old, there's not a lot of that. So it mm-hmm. is a bit of a challenge. We are navigating that and trying to figure it out. It's not maybe the most prolific artistic time in my life. I feel like I'm doing, um, I feel like I'm doing great engineering work right now though. Um, and it's, there's something about having less free time that, that sharpens you in the, t- the free time that you do have because you know, and not, not so much the free time even, but just the work time, you know that you have like X number of hours to get something done. So it, it really causes you to focus. Uh, in the time frame that you have. I look at it like this, you know, and everybody's going to call me a giant, you know, geek for even drawing this comparison. But when you have all the free time in the world, it's just the same handicap as having as many tracks as you want. But if you have, <laughs> but if you have limitations, I like that. Like a tape machine, it forces you to be a little more creative. You know, being a dad of an eight and 11 year old, I could say you're at that point where it's going to force your hand creatively. And it's also going to cause you to make the most of the limitation of time. Yes. It's just so, it's so painful for me to have to rush a creative process. Like I'm not like a, like my band is working on writing material for our new record right now. And it's like, I'm not really like a jam player. I'm, I'm a, I'm a premeditated kind of player. And so to have to like come up with things quickly on the spot always feels like kind of like a cop out to me. Sometimes we do that stuff and it works out great, but in a lot of cases, like it just feels like we took the, we took the shortest path rather than the, the best path to, uh, to completion. Hmm. Uh, so that, that, that I get extremely stressed out, not having enough time to, digest what's happening and and to try to make the best decisions that I can make creatively. A lot of times those like long, those like when you have too much time, you don't make good creative decisions. I'm, I'm pretty good at about, I, I have become good at divorcing myself from that. I wasn't mm-hmm. always, but I've become good at it. So you guys aren't the type of band that likes to sit down and, and record, you know, potential ideas and stuff go, hey, let's, what about that riff and this idea? Oh, we do that. You know, we, we record every practice. Um, and then we have like a, we have a pretty deep riff bank. And generally like the stuff in our riff bank is better than we think it is when we're recording it. But we're not a simple band. And we also are not like a, an extremely versatile band. But, but we're a band that, that puts a lot of importance on not repeating ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we've been together for over 25 years now. And this with the same lineup for 16 or 17, no, like 17 or 18 years. So to spend, you know, 18 years with the same four people who are limited in their talents to try to find musical common ground with between those four people, both in terms of taste and ability and for it to not be something we've done before is increasingly difficult. <laughs> um <laughs> So that's that's the dilemma that I that we're in every time we make a record, and then to 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 be doing that, you know, actually since our last album, collectively we've had six children, so <laughs> it's like really a big lifestyle change. And I was going to say, well, how does you having a kid affect the morale or concerns of the band? But obviously, you guys have been down this path before. Yeah, it's cool now that everybody is a parent because um, we all get it. We're just like, oh, okay. 
yeah, it's fine. Like, I understand why you're late. It's because your walls are covered in shit and you have like, barf on your face and you just have to clean up a little bit before you get to practice. Like, I get it. As a parent, I think that that's an important aspect when dealing with other people, when they understand what having kids means, they can be more empathetic. Uh, whether it's, you know, in a band or in the studio or whatever. Yeah, I definitely have a, a very, very different perspective now. I was going to ask you some health questions in terms of, we sit on our butts a lot in, in, yes. in this business. So as far as, you know, health, exercise, eating, amount of sleep, obviously your sleep's being compromised uh, greatly at this point in fatherhood. Yeah. Um, how do you make that work with late sessions and such? It's tricky. Uh, I don't tend to work super late. I'm pretty strict about the hours. Like it's generally like 10 to 8, 10 to 7, something like that. So it's not super late. I mean, it's probably later than I would like sometimes, but, you know, and then, and then mixed days are maybe a little more flexible than that. But yeah, not, not super late sessions. And then I always take a break for lunch at some point in the afternoon and go outside and walk around, even if it's brutally cold. And I bring my dog to the studio with me just about every day. So there's a, there's several dog walks that happen. So at least I'm getting a little fresh air and getting outside. And there is natural light in my studio, which is nice. I eat too much, but I eat reasonably healthy. Uh, I have a good immune system. Like in the, in the summer, it's, you know, stinks in the winter around here. Most of my, most of my exercise lately has been shoveling. Um, mm -hmm. But in the summer, you know, I go kayaking a few times a week. Not that that's like amazing exercise, but I ride my bike and I go kayaking and um, a lot of woods hikes and stuff. Like my, my partner is a um, pretty big time bird watcher. So we go out and do some bird watching, maybe a little mycology, um, take the dog out in the woods and, and have fun. And, you know, so we'll be doing that with the kid this year. Radical topic shift. Let's talk about mentors. Yeah. Yeah. Who, do you have a mentor or have you had mentors in the past uh, with regards to recording? Well, uh, rec.audio.pro. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, well, I, when I had a day job, I was a terrible employee. I spent a, this is like, you know, news, news group days, like there was barely a world wide web, but I'd, I'd get on news groups and I would read rap like religiously. In terms of actual people, there weren't a whole lot. I mean, I, I never interned or assisted for anyone. I kind of regret that. I think because of that, I learned how to do what I do more slowly than a lot of people do, and certainly slower than people are able to do now with all of the, you know, all the tutorials available online. Um, like I've, you know, I've taught a couple of classes for Creative Live, um, which which people seem to have gotten a lot of. So that, and I wish there were resources like that when I was coming up. There, I just had the internet and, and books and magazines and trial and error. And so, but, but I had like maybe, I want to say like a few people that I would consider to be mentors. And the first one, it's actually younger than me, Brian McTernan. Um, it's weird. It's usually, it's kind of strange when your mentor is younger, but he was, he didn't go to college. He just went right, right into recording right away. And he lived, his, um, his wife was going to Harvard around the time that I was living in Boston. So he was up from DC and had a studio in his basement and I would go over there and, and make records with him. I remember asking him at one point, hey, this would be really cool. Like if I got into recording, like would, would that piss you off if I if I got into it? Would you feel like I was like trying to take your business or something? And he was like, no, no, man, this is awesome. You should totally do it. Like, I think you'd be good at it. I'd love to see more people doing that. And it, it was like one of the first things where I realized that competitors could also be collaborators and cooperators and that there's a 
there's a hive intelligence to really any craft that benefits everybody, especially when you are open and forthcoming about the things in which you've learned. And, and that's, and Brian was like that to me, you know, he, he was happy to share knowledge with me, even though we were sort of trying to get bands from within, you know, somewhat similar demographics. So I learned a lot from that experience. You know, he has since pretty much retired from recording music, uh, which is interesting. And then there were some other people that, that my band Converge recorded records with that had, had some influence on us. But the next big one would be Matt Ellard, who was uh, then the chief engineer at, at Q Division in Boston. He recorded the Converge record Jane Doe, or recorded much of it. And it was my first time, you know, I, I was already sort of a moonlighting recording engineer and I had a studio space. Actually, I think it was on my second studio space at that point, or third even. But I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't a full-time recording engineer. It was still still a hobby for me. And I, I didn't yet have the skill sets where I, where I wanted to record my own band. Like I knew what we should sound like, but I, I didn't, I didn't know how to how to get us there, and Matt was someone who knew how to get us there, and he you know he had he had a pretty wide range of of recording experience, especially in the '90s where where like the uh, the alternative music scene in Boston was really exploding. He recorded a bunch of like you know Weezer and Juliana Hatfield and Morphine and um, you know bunch of really cool stuff. Um, so you know I, I watched him work, and and we sort of stayed in touch over the years, and. One time I hired him, actually a couple other times I hired him to mix records that I had recorded. And it was really interesting seeing his approach to things. So yeah, I got a lot out of working with him, but I think more than anything, my mentors were things I read about on the internet. And I think back in the in the rec.audio pro days, the signal to noise ratio was still pretty good. Like you were likely to, to happen upon pretty good information or pretty cool ideas to try out. And so I, so I did, and I started experimenting. And you know, fortunately, like a lot of the records that I was making back then were just, you know, local band demos and stuff. So like the stakes weren't very high mm -hmm. if there was a failed experiment. And also my rates were low enough that I think there was sort of an expectation that they weren't getting like a major label quality recording. So it was sort of, it was okay. You know, everybody, everybody uh, practiced on each other. In some ways, Gear Sluts has kind of taken that spot of rec.audio.pro in terms of its ubiquity and the amount of traffic that goes to it. Yeah. Absolutely. Gearsless is great. And I've learned a lot from there. Um, you know, I've been a member for at least 10 years, if not more. You know, sometimes the signal to noise ratio is a bit tricky. I found that as I've as I've worked more, I've spent less time on the forums, which made me think that, oh, maybe the people who spend a lot of time on the forums aren't working very much, which made me then think, well, maybe I should take these opinions with a grain of salt. And I think that that's good advice for any kind of opinion on the internet is, it's just an opinion. You should you should decide for yourself with your own research. Yeah, I, you know, I've always had a kind of a cherry picker attitude about all of that stuff that we see on the internet. Find what works for you and use it if it works for you. And if not, then move on. For sure. Yeah, and, th and there was a time when I would like, if I sort of came upon my own new piece of knowledge that I, I kept it close to my chest, that I it was protective of it. Because I thought that like, oh, if I tell people that I'm using an SM57 on a snare drum, like they're going to clone my drum sound or, you know, and then it, after a little while, I realized, okay, that's ridiculous. There's like, there, we, we have, we have so much minutia to manage and it all filters through our rooms and our gear and our ears and our sensibilities and that of our clients and all that stuff that there's, there's absolutely no way that like sharing a piece of knowledge is going to be in any way, anything other than beneficial to your, to your career. 
in your experience, you know, like the goodwill that that being open about what you do, the, the goodwill that that builds is so much more important than the the secrets that you protect. Yeah, and the you inspire others exactly by, by sharing that information. Yeah, and then you can learn from them because you know, like I said earlier, there's a hive intelligence to this. None of us are really all that smart. I mean, a few people out there are really smart, but most of us are just like a little above average. And but collectively, like with the you know the hive intelligence of recording engineers, we can do some cool stuff. Who inspires you? Whether it's in production or mixing or recording, it might just be the digital age. But I'm really horrible at reading liner notes. I think it's more just like pushing myself, um, trying to be, trying to never be worse than I was last week. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, honestly, like I, I, I'm, in, you know, kind of embarrassed to say, but you know, I listen to so much music in my studio that I don't listen to a lot of music outside of work. I totally get that. I listen to podcasts and NPR. When I'm driving to and from work, um, when I'm at home, I spend time with my family. We maybe watch a movie or something, but I don't listen to a ton of music right now. You know, certainly I hear stuff that impresses me. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not consuming music in that way right now, unfortunately. No, I understand that. I mean, I, I definitely go through waves of that, where I just don't want to listen to anything after I walk away from like spending, you know, mixing a record all day. Yeah, for me, there's so much self-deprecation that happens in listening to music, whether it's listening to my own music or something I something I wrote or something I recorded or somebody else's recordings. You know, I'll hear someone else's recording that I think is amazing. I'll just be like, oh, I'll never be this good. Turn it off. Like I, I can't listen to it because it just frustrates me that I'll never I'll never make a record that sounds that good or even my own recordings. Like I listen back to something I did years ago and one of two things invariably happens. Either I'll think, wow, this is awesome. How come I can't make records that sound this good anymore? Or I'll think, wow, this sounds like shit. Why did anybody think I was any good back then? I fucking sucked. And it just, it just is a spiral of self-hatred no matter what I do, <laughs> whether it's, you know, like listening to my own music or, or, or somebody else's music, it's hard. So I haven't been doing a lot of it lately. How do you stay organized? I mean, you run a studio, you're in a band, you have a family. There's a lot of shit to keep up with. I don't like cleaning. So if I make more jobs for myself, then I don't have to clean up. <laughs> or really, any, any like like I actually finally got around to gut, to renting a dumpster and gutting my basement recently. It's been a it's been something that's been hanging over my head for about ten years. <laughs> just have like like a big purge i just yeah i just have like waterlogged box after waterlogged box of drummer gates that i don't have anymore and other you know i'd always save the original packaging of everything i bought and then i don't even have the, it's just like gross down there i had to like clear it out make some space throw out like my childhood desk that's for a left-handed person and i'm right-handed there's absolutely no reason for me to keep it like but i hoard it because i hate cleaning and i'd rather start a guitar company than clean my basement that's why I started building guitars like, like five years ago or whatever. Like when I started GCI, it was because I had a, like a band cancel or something and I had like a month off and I was like, I could clean my basement or I can get into SolidWorks and design a guitar and go to my dad's CNC machine and cut some bodies. So I'm going to do that instead because that's more fun than, um, <laughs> than vacuuming in basement and renting a dumpster. 
I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> I was saying, how do you stay organized with, you know, these companies and the family and the band and the studio? And... It's tricky. I mean, uh, shared calendars are super helpful. You know, my bandmates, my partner, my uh, intern, we all share various calendars. Um, so we can, we know what each other are doing when we, when we need to know. So that's, that's helpful. A lot of my bills are done auto pay. So I don't have to think about that stuff. I actually got my taxes done already this year. It's insane. It's like the first time ever oh. my, my accountant was just like blown away that I, that I got it all together. Cause usually I filed, I filed 2015, like, I don't know, four or five months ago. And I already have. Have 2016 done. So there's a record time for me. So maybe it's having a kid. Like maybe I'll have a little more focus now. I cleaned my basement. I did my taxes. Maybe I'm becoming an adult. I think you're on your way. I hope so. I see. Well, interview me again in a year and see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I'll check back with you and see how the uh, the adult transition is going. You know, you were talking about cleaning out your basement and and hoarding stuff from the past. Do you hoard gear? I hoard broken headphones. Um, and oh, I threw away so many headphones. I threw away, I threw away tons of headphones, several old computers that I spent thousands of dollars on. I threw away broken cable after broken cable that I'm never going to get around to fixing. I snipped all the connectors off, of course, which I'll also never get around to using, but at least they take up less space. But yeah, a gear hoarding, sure. You know what I hate is having a hole in my rack. I've been thinking about maybe replacing a lot of gear that I don't use in my rack with like shelving or drawers or something so that I can have storage, more storage in my control room instead of having holes in my rack. But right now I've, I've got like gear in my rack that's like not even plugged in that's just there so that I don't have holes in my rack. I think you should get smaller racks because if you get those drawers, you're just going to hoard more shit. Yeah, I thought about that. But then that's <laughs> that's like another project, and I don't really have a lot of time for projects. I have 60 more channels of my console that aren't even hooked up right now. Like, I got to do that before I, like, redo my rack. Um, the, the computer thing is a challenge because I'm a computer hoarder because I'll okay. sit and I'll go, well, you know, I could... I could turn that into something. I could turn that into a machine that digitizes cassettes or <laughs> okay, <laughs> or or a server or uh, you know whatever. It's very hard to throw something that you know has or had value away when for just a little bit more money you could turn it into something. And that something is probably something you don't need, but it makes you feel not wasteful. Like I grew up in a very frugal household. You know, I never went hungry or anything like that, but my, my parents were pretty dirt poor when they were young. And then, you know, even, in, even when they were young adults and, you know, as, you know, as I grew up and became aware of, of money, uh, it was less and less of a problem in my family, mm -hmm. but still like there's a very frugal attitude in my family. So it was extremely hard for me to throw anything away. Like I just was plagued with this like Catholic guilt anytime I threw something away that could be turned into something else. You know, every time I have like a guitar that I don't use rather than like selling it, I'm always looking around like, oh, well, hold on. If I, if I put an Evertune in this, I could do that, but the body's not thick enough for an Evertune, but I could probably, I could go get some more lumber and add some thickness to the body and like, but then I'll have to refinish it. So then I'm like looking on re-ranch and you know, it's, it's like this snowballing thing of like, how can I reappropriate this into something useful when in reality you should just jettison the thing and send it to someone who will use it or send it to some other hoarder that's going to revel in their hoarding. Yeah. Get I on to, with making I, music. I've learned to check myself, just, you know, wait at least 48 hours before I act on any of my nutty ideas of, 
you know, oh, I'll repurpose this and it's going to be this. It's a good idea to pause and ponder all decisions, especially, you know, internet commenting. Perfect example. Something comes yeah. in mind. Wait, take a deep breath. Come back in five minutes, an hour, a day. If you still you know, there was to. a uh, there was a guest uh, on Working Class Audio, Bruce Kappen, many episodes ago, and Bruce taught us, uh, at least taught me, because I didn't know about it, about the limbic system. You know, like if somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get angry and then you want to flip them off or you want to yell. Yeah. At least I do. He says, if you wait ninety seconds, you'll let the limbic system discharge essentially, and you can go back to sanity and not get yourself in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, this is actually something I've thought about a lot, not so much from a biological standpoint, but like from just from a life experience standpoint that I'm very much a pacifist. But because of that, like I'm I'm not comfortable around like violence or, or like agitated situations. So when there is an agitated situation, I'm much more likely to react because it's not something that I'm around all the time. I'm not comfortable around it. Like, you know, like, like a boxer or something like that, they can get punched in the face and still think rationally. If you punch me in the face, I'm going to see red and just go absolutely crazy because I don't have like the mechanisms to cope with that. Isn't your singer a boxer? Doesn't he box? No, he's done some MMA training and his record label has sponsored some MMA fighters. I mean, all of my circle of friends and, and basically anybody involved in punk rock is like a longtime pro wrestling enthusiast. <laughs> so I think that uh, some, you know, out, out of... The childhood love of pro wrestling. I think he, um, you know, he he found the MMA training stuff. I'm not exactly sure the details of what he does, but I, I, I actually noticed some like really positive changes in his personality. Um, he became like much better at much calmer, much better at like coping with with any sort of adversity, much less likely to um, react quickly to things. So I think that there is like a benefit from, you know, becoming comfortable with conflict. I'm, I've never been comfortable with conflict. It's like the thing that I shy away from the most. Like my my parents are like the cleavers, you know, like they, high school sweethearts, I've never seen them fight once in my life. So I grew, I grew up not being around conflict at all. Um, so it's been hard as an adult to come to terms with conflict being something that that is natural and okay and something that you can use uh, positively. I want to ask you about this. Scott Evans and I were talking because you and Scott Evans are friends. So he says. And uh, so that's what he says. <laughs> He's a wonderful um, man. Scott brought up something really interesting. He said, Kurt's made so many records, but what's interesting is a large majority of those records have been made in your own spaces rather than you going out to other studios. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting thing. Do you... You obviously, you live in a small, smaller town, smaller suburbs, so you don't venture out too much to other studios, I guess. I guess it's just not in your routine. I think, you know, it's, a, it's an economics thing. When my studio was less established and when I didn't have a great selection of gear and instruments and stuff here, sometimes it made sense for me to work in other studios. And also before I like really learned to work the room here to get like explosive drum, drum room kind of sounds. It sometimes made sense for me to work out of other studios, but increasingly it's it's made less and less sense. The results that I get when I'm working here are vastly superior to the results that I get working in other studios. So when mm -hmm. I do travel to record bands, which at this point is like, I don't think I did it even, well, I did a, con a couple Converse Rubber Track sessions this past year. But aside from that, I think it's been, 
it wasn't since 2015 that I actually flew somewhere to record a band. So that's usually like an economic or a scheduling issue where like, you know, a band from somewhere else in the world can't afford to fly to come record with me. So they they fly me out to record somewhere else. And But it's, it's tricky to do that as a studio owner because you can't really work for a freelance engineer's rate because you still have a studio at home that still has a, a mortgage that needs to be paid even though it's sitting idle. So it's it's not always like the, the best situation. I, I feel like I can offer both my studio space and my equipment is is a for what it is, is going to be cheaper than for me to find a, a comparably equipped studio close to them that I could work in. It's still going to be less money for them to fly here to work with me. Not always the case, but it is a lot of times. And once in a while, like that, that, that project I did in 2015 was with a band called uh, Sumac, and they really wanted to record in this giant old church in Anacortes, Washington. So they, they flew me out there to do that. And it was really cool. Actually, it was a really cold experience. <laughs> There's no no HVAC. One thing about my studio, the HVAC works awesome. That's why I like and, working here. And you know, I I, I got to mention this to, for the audience members that don't know. If you haven't, re- this is one of the things that I read online was that you basically took a severance package from your job and turned that into a West Show design studio. Uh, not quite that direct, but I took a severance package from my job and lived on it while accruing credit card debt. Uh, and ta- oh, and, sh- okay. and shopping for real estate and and taking out mortgages and stuff, but but yeah, I mean, I I did have you know I I, ha- I had a pretty pretty good engineering job prior uh, biomedical engineering, not audio engineering job prior to doing my studio full time. But 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 even like when I left that job, I had a I had a band that was that was doing well that that could tour as much as we wanted to, and um, you know I had a bunch of gear and and a and a studio space that I could work at. Uh, nights and weekends. So things, I was already in a pretty good, good place there. And it was just a matter of like, okay, if I want to really go for this now, because I have a bit of a financial buffer, because I had a nice severance package, then I need to have a space that I can work in whenever I want, which I didn't have at my last place. And I also, like, I, I needed to upgrade the sonics of my studio and and the last place like didn't even have a functioning bathroom or or heat so i knew that it wasn't a place that i could stay in so then you know then the the quest for to build a studio came uh came and i was going to just do it myself like i did my previous three studios but then that tape up article with wesley show came along and i was like hmm i mean i should at least talk to this guy and he did a you know great job building the studio and it's very you know very usable acoustic space did he help you in the in the choice of the building no that was me he i think he actually kind of discouraged my choice in building it's not a particularly big building and i had to gut the whole thing you know he he came out before i purchased the building and took a lot of measurements and then came up with rough plans and decided that yes it could work and this is the only configuration that he would be willing to do it in so it's sort of a you know, there's some odd use of space, but it's a it's an odd shaped building. Like if you were to look at the building from the top, it's sort of shaped like a harp, hmm. um, like a like a upright harp. So it's it, there's nothing square about it, which in some ways is cool for a studio. But but trying to fit like a quote unquote properly designed control room into a um, an odd shaped building leaves a lot of funny nooks and crannies here and there. I, I assume you're happy with the uh, the result. Yeah, I mean, it's an awesome studio. It's served me really well. I've made a lot of records here that I'm proud of. And, and uh, you know, 
people seem to enjoy being here and especially people seem to enjoy being in this town. Like there's just a ton of stuff to do right out the front door, which has been, which has been really nice. And, and even now, like the last couple of years, having onsite accommodations has made it even better. I guess my, my only complaint about the studio is that I wish that I had put my foot down more about personalizing it. You know, like if you look at a lot of Wes's studios, especially the, the lesser expensive ones, they look exactly like my studio right down to the paint which is a bit of a bum out. You know, I'm someone who likes to have personalized things and to get Wes for the price that I got was like quite the blessing. You know, he was still not, he was not as sought after then as he is now and was able to give me like a really good rate. And I got a lot of labor out of him too. He did a lot of the carpentry with me. So, you know, it was sort of like the thing where I just, beggars can't be choosers, but I, I wish that I had done more back then to just find a way to like cosmetically personalize the studio. Mm -hmm. And uh, final question, in terms of the gear that you've chosen, you have a wide variety of gear that uh, accommodates different tones. I was, you know, you've got the Tone Lux stuff, you've got the uh, Thermionic Culture stuff, uh, you've yeah. got the other mixer to your far left, which I have not, uh, I can't remember the name it's of. Pop Amp Labs. Yeah. Obviously that workflow has worked for you for quite some time. Is your workflow changing and as you move through time here and do you see yourself paring down at all? Yeah, I absolutely could. I would love to actually pare down a lot of the gear. I'm not, um, but I, you know, I, I remember talking to Fletcher at Mercenary once and him saying that if his building burned down, it would be the best thing that ever happened to him. Like, not that I'm going to like light a fire in here or anything like that, but like, you know, I'm sure every engineer has fantasized about the idea of like, what if I had all the money I invested in gear and could start over? The rig that I have is really awesome because it gives me a lot of tonal flavors, but it's also really convoluted. I love the ergonomics of it, like the way that I position my computer right in the center. My computer monitor is right in the center. My keyboard is right in the center. And my master section is right in the center. And then all of my like mixing stuff and a, a fair amount of the outboard that I use regularly it just kind of flanks me. So I'm, I'm right in the sweet spot between the speakers all the time. Like I don't have like a rolling cart with my computer on it uh, that I have to use. But I do crave the old days when I had a mixing console that was just 32 channels of the same thing with buses. And you can just jump into making music on one of those. You don't have to like belabor every decision of like, oh, should I mix this through that? Or should I mix this through the other thing? And let me audition these three consoles to see what sounds best on what and like you know in a lot of cases i'm I, I basically just do everything on the tone mux now like my my grandiose idea when i started this thing would, would be that i would do, do all these various sub mixes based on what console sounded best but in terms of workflow it works best for me to just mix everything on the on the tone mux and 16 channels is enough for what i need i do a bunch of sub mixing in the box you know and i'm i'm happy with that I think I might be happier with something else, but the process of tearing this console out of the studio and installing something different is just more effort and money than I want to get involved in. And I don't think that it would, it would be, it would might make me a little bit happier, but it wouldn't make me any happier with my results, I don't think. Mm. Um, and I also, it's also all custom furniture. So then I've got this like giant desk that is, you know, the Op Amp Labs console is like a weird size. So it's like, Unless you have like a 10 channel op amp labs console, you don't want this desk. Maybe I'd sell the, the console with the desk. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I do kind of long for a, um, for fewer options, actually. 
Like I remember, I remember Jeff Daking telling me like that, just like a mic pre is a mic pre. If you have a good mic pre, you're fine. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. So Jeff, don't get mad at me. But he's like, if you have a good mic preamp, that's all you need. Just go ahead and start making music. Like you don't need to belabor every mic preamp decision, for example. Yeah. The differences or the, the variances in the flavors is not worth sweating. Unless, as long as it's a good mic pre. Exactly. I mean, there's times, there's obviously this like special, special needs for things here and there. And there, there are differences, but like, I don't know. I think the difference between like a, a 312 and a, and a 1073 without like an EQ engaged, that difference is infinitely smaller than the difference between moving your mic a quarter of an inch. Yeah. Or, or, or swapping the mic out entirely. Exactly. Yeah. Or changing the speaker that you're miking or changing out the guitar, things like that, I just find make a much more appreciable difference. Well, Kurt, this has been great talking with you. And uh, at some point, if I'm ever out on the East Coast, uh, I'd like to come pay you a visit. That would be great. I'll show you to my local coffee establishments. We will drink coffee for damn sure, because <laughs> I'm a coffee drinker. I've heard that about you. Oh, yeah. Well, Kurt, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for doing this. It's been great. Been great talking to you. All right. Thanks, man. Take care. Have a good night. See you. Well, there you have it, Mr. Kurt Ballou here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I got to give a special shout out to our buddy, Scott Evans, for helping to set that up. Former WCA alum, Scott Evans. Fantastic. Really good to have him on. So here we go. We're out of time. So I'm going to thank everybody, of course. Going to thank Cliff Truesdell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And going to thank Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Lawton Audio, and Audio-Technica. And of course, thank you. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>